On the Empire Podcast this week, we talk to Doug Edge, Lyman of Director of Tomorrow, over and over again until we get it right. And Maleficent star Sam Riley also pops in for a chat. Lat, plus we talk to Doug Tomorrow, Edge of Director of Lyman, over and over again until we get it right. Plus all the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that talks to Doug Lyman, Director of Edge of Tomorrow, over and over again until we get it right. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, your weekly dose of movie chattage. Uh, joining me this week are three of the finest bods in movie history, and they've got the movie brains to match. First up is Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello. I'm going to ask you all a question. Sure. Uh, and it's related to Edge of Tomorrow. If you could live a day in your life over and over again. Right. Not necessarily until you get it right. What would okay. it be? Can I, can I like defer that for the future so I can like choose one when I get there? This moment right now? This moment. This day. No. No. Damn it. Uh, next up is Jurassic Park paddock specialist Nick Dissemlian. Hello, Nick. The same question to you, Nick. Hi, Chris. It would have to be last Tuesday, which was the day I received the official movie novelization <laughs> Godzilla. You may have seen I was tweeting uh, a, a few choice quotes from this, this great work. Yeah. Uh, I just want to read a quick excerpt out. Is that okay? Do sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's it by? Who's it by? This is by Greg Cox. He has done some other novelizations, uh, including a, some good Star Trek ones. But he really gets inside the mind of Godzilla in a way that I don't feel the movie did. <laughs> and uh, this, this isn't a spoiler. Godzilla's laboured breathing could be heard across the water. The monster's eyelids drooped. He appeared utterly spent. Ford knew just how he felt. <laughs> I love it. No, it's really good. I recommend it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe you. Hmm. I really don't believe you. Uh, does it get inside the mind of Ford Brody in a way that Aaron Taylor-Johnson could not? Uh, no comment on that. Last but not least is editing boffin Ali Plum. Hello, Ali. Hello. Uh, what day would you relive over and over again? Can I have two days? Yeah, of course you can. Well, the two days would be last week. Uh, those are the two days that they uh, that, that I edited both the <laughs> Empire <laughs> podcast and the spoiler special. The gargantuan two-hour bear moth that is probably sitting in your... Uh, Podcast listening folder ready to be what, X-Men. Yeah, did I say X-Men? No, you didn't. Just say spoiler podcast. Mm-hmm. You just say spoiler podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's alright. I thought that didn't make sense. No, it's fine. It did. It's good. Go it's back good. and do it again. Yeah, I will, yeah. <laughs> Would you build bionic wrists to ease the editing process? Yes. Alright, uh well welcome everybody. I hope you're all good. Uh let's kick off in the time honored fashion by taking some listeners' questions. Uh and let's start off with the question by email from Ruben Halberg who asks, which is the actor-slash-actress you think carries a movie, whom you've seen every frame of and never will give up on in the middle of a movie? Mine is Natalie Portman. This is Rubens, not me. Mine is Natalie Portman and Michael Fassbender. And yes, I did finish both No Strings Attached and Centurion, neither of which are bad films. So it's not a hardship to sit through No Strings Attached and Centurion. Not great, but not bad either. Uh, so who do, who do we start? Uh, Ali, let's start with you. Who's the actor-actress that you will never give up on? Ever. You're going to point out a couple where I would, but John Goodman <laughs> might be one. Right. I, I like him a lot. And I would also say, I'll never give up on because I'm a completionist, but Jason Statham, even though he's appeared in some oh. real dreck, but there's something, you know when you've started collecting, you know, yeah. those Panini stickers, you go, I can't afford it and I don't care anymore, uh, but I am going to see this through to the end. Yeah. I'm with you now. I've got a lot of faith in the Stath, and he does make some absolute clunkers. But every now and again, there's a really good one that shines through, like a safe, which was really good. I actually enjoyed Killer Elite. I thought that was pretty good. It has really? a nice twisty, turny plot. I don't think many people have seen it. Has anyone, uh, has anyone seen it in this podcast? It's got Clive punching people. Uh, has anyone seen it here? No? Nope. Honestly, you saw it in the plane. It's two hours, 20 minutes. It's, really? But it's actually got a complex plot that, that, with twists and turns and stuff you don't see coming. It's 
pretty decent actually. And then he makes things like uh, what was that dreadful film he did? Parker James was Frank. really bad. Yeah, Ho- was home right. home front. front. Yeah, that wasn't good. That I'll be honest. I, I tried to watch that the other week because I'm kind of the same. Uh, Jason Statham will probably be all right. Mm. It was not good. I give yeah. up halfway through. I haven't, have yet to go back to it. I we, do think there's a decent actor in the Statham. I really do. I think he's great. I honestly yeah. think he's great. Every time I've interviewed him, he, he has a reputation of being a bit sullen, but I actually quite like him, and he's got a really dark, dry sense of humour. And I saw uh, you have a was it the weekend or a few days ago you were tweeting about how we need to get a kickstart of a Crank 3 which I mm. couldn't agree with you more and Mark Neveldine one of the directors of both Crank and Crank 2 High Voltage was like yes let's make it happen we need, we need to somehow gather together enough pennies to see <laughs> Chev Chelios back on the big screen I'll put up half the budget I agree with that but have you seen Hummingbirds? I liked Hummingbird. Oh. Uh, yeah, you're a maniac. I'm not a maniac. I thought I thought it didn't entirely achieve what Stephen Knight was trying, but it, it got there for the most part for me. Mm. It was it was a decent uh, blend of trying to be a psychodrama with some of the chop socky punchy safety stuff, and I quite enjoyed that 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 side of it. Why is it called Hummingbird? Uh, because he he imagines. I was a lot of seen it. He he imagines a hummingbird. He sees a hummingbird. Mm. He has one of his visions. He has yeah. He doesn't fight it now. He, there is a great bit where he um, kills someone with a spoon. I'm in. You're in. I'm in. I'm a, I'm a Kiefer Sutherland. I'm a 24 uh, completist, and I, I've even, even seen season six of that show. Uh, so I will watch <laughs> pretty much anything with Kiefer Sutherland. I haven't seen Pompeii yet, he, but I have seen a clip. He is a lot of fun in that film. <laughs> his accent in that film looks astounding. It doesn't look astounding. It sounds astounding. It's, um, like Honestly, his voice is like he's channeling Severus Snape, but from the bottom of a well. Mm. Hey, look, it's some lava. 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 Uh, but I've even made it to the end of Flashback, which is... Um, <laughs> has anyone seen Flashback? Uh, Dennis Hopper. Which is a midnight yeah. run ripoff. He is handcuffed to Dennis Hopper, who's a big old druggie, and he's the straight-laced FBI agent, and it's uh, it, it, it's not good. I used to be like that with Nick Cage, but you had to draw a line somewhere. Having said that, he's been really good in, th- in some stuff recently, and yes. apparently David Gordon Green's Joe, which is coming out later this year, apparently he's brilliant in it. We had a season of The Witch Night, didn't we? You, we did me and James Dyer. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Saturday night, which makes it even worse. Yeah. That's yeah, so we should bad. be watching X Factor or doing something with our lives. It's so bad. That was the one where they go, isn't it, uh, two thousand leagues, and they travel it in under a week. And <laughs> a league is actually more than a mile. It's not less. It's about six miles. I hey, think. when you're Nick Cage, you can do it. You can absolutely do it. I don't know. I don't know what the point which I stopped. I think. I think Nick Cage has become sort of a figure of fun, uh, a human pinata for people to hit. Uh, over the over the years, but yeah, he is still capable of brilliance in my in my mind. And even in his quite bad films, he's sometimes fun. Drive Angry, for example, like he's brilliant. I would also put Clint on this list. I would, yeah. I think I'd watch any film that he's in through to the end. I don't think there's a film where I'd go, I'm not interested in what you're doing. That's true, actually. Are there something about the uber manly men that that always feel like because they don't live in real life? They're such a movie idea. Sam Elliott, whenever he's in anything, I'm just like entranced by him. By the moustache, God! It's just like they're kind of because they, mm. these people aren't in my world. I just mm. I don't I don't see these um, deep voiced gravelers. Clint, I, I agree. I, I've seen far more Dan Aykroyd than I should have, um, including Nothing But Trouble and Neighbours, <laughs> which is kind of Bad Neighbours. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a remake of that. Do you think he's watched all of his movies? <laughs> no. I'm certainly hasn't. I'm certain Dan Aykroyd has not seen all of his films. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's impossible. Be a Christopher Lee completist. I dare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'll take most of your life. But I don't know. There's there's lots of actors I love, but uh I don't know if there's anyone I have I, I would never give up on. I don't know. But uh let's see, let's move on to the next question now. Which is uh, uh a Twitter question. 
This is from at Tom Cert, C-E-R-T. And he says, I'm currently reading Hellraisers, which is a, a book by uh, Robert Sellers, who's a, a regular contributor to Empire, I guess. So this is an amazing book. Uh, it's about Richard Burton, Richard Harris, uh, Oliver Reed and Peter O'Toole. It's about their hell-raising lives and how they, they grew up. It's a fantastic book. I've, I've, I've read it as well. And there's a graphic novel version of it with art by Jake, the artist Jake, which is fantastic. Anyway, back to Tom Zert's question. I'm currently reading Hellraisers, which is great. Can you recommend me some good Richard Burton films? Um, I would particularly recommend uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is pr- arguably his yeah. best performance and obviously is against his... Uh, his on-off wife, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. It's also worth watching Cleopatra for that kind of same reason of, of seeing the two of them spark off each other, and that was obviously the film where they met and fell in love. Well, he's the narrator in Zulu, you know, so yeah. bonus points for that. If you want to see him being ridiculously manly, you want to watch Where Eagles Dare, where he's bossing <laughs> Clint Eastwood around like a mofo, and um, Clint Eastwood fails to stop the Nazis getting away on a cable car, so Richard Burton clambers on with an ice axe and takes on the Nazis, and it's awesome. It's one of my favourite action scenes of all time. I also want to give an honorary mention to the spy who came in from the cold, which has one of the best taglines of all time. Brace yourself for greatness. I often say that. That's an amazing (laughs) tagline for a film. Please don't tell us what context you use it in, Chris. Please don't. (laughs) You would be surprised how often I use that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Regal Stare is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, that's be fair. He made his he made his fair share of clunkers, especially towards the end of his career. Okay. Uh, I would not recommend Exorcist Two, the the Heretic. Uh, I would recommend The Wild Geese if you're on a uh, where Eagles Dare double bill. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. It's a completely bonkers uh, war movie with Roger Moore. With Roger Moore and Richard Harris, it's basically the the amount of booze consumed in that set. I imagine broke several records. Um, and I quite like this is a this is a weird one, uh, a film called The Medusa Touch where he plays a man who uh, essentially can, I guess, predict the future, or he th- he, he ha- is some sort of telekinetic, and it, it's, it, it scared the living crap out of me when I was a kid, especially the end, which is quite dark and downbeat. So if you can seek out the Medusa touch, I, I won't vouch that it holds up, <laughs> necessarily. I did see it when I was a kid. Uh, but, yeah, I really, really remember that one, so uh, seek that one out. Nothing else. Look back in anger, maybe. He's one of those guys. He's an amazing, iconic legend, and he's done some fantastic films. But I would argue that maybe his film career doesn't entirely stack up to his theatrical career. Who knows? But if you want a great interview with Richard Burton, there's a Playboy interview with him from way back in the day. But if you go on the Kindle store on Amazon, you can download a whole bunch of really, really interesting Playboy interviews with a load of actors for very cheap. Excellent. Uh, all right, let's move on now to the next question. This is from another Twitter question. This is from at Chris Hewitt LFC. What? Anyway, I basically I watched X Men Two again recently, and the uh, the golfing quality between that and X Men struck me. Uh, it's much 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 better. We discussed sequels, of course, in the podcast, but I want to talk about sequels that are a quantum leap beyond the original. X Men Two to X Men is vastly superior. So, what movies? And I'm, I'm glad that Nick's here because he's very rarely here to to vouch for Naked Gun 2.5 Ghostbusters 2 we've talked to death but I want to know why you think Naked Gun 2.5 is better than Naked Gun it's a difficult one to pin down I just think it's funny I think the gag rate is higher I love all the stuff in the White House with uh, with the bushes I may be crazy uh, but I just I just think it's funny and Robert Goulet is a fantastic villain Goulet 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 <laughs> that's one of the things I love about the Naked Gun films the villains are all sort of Vegas showmen he's <laughs> Quentin Habsburg isn't he uh, Quentin Habsburg Quentin Habsburg uh, I love the sequence where uh, Richard Griffiths has everything fallen him, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fantastic. That's incredible. That's and raw sewage, I love it. <laughs> Can't be that. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Helen, you got anything that's uh, that's better than the original? Obviously, Miles better. Yeah. obviously, Fast Five. 
obviously. Um, which is a quantum leap forward on all the previous ones. Um, in the same way that X2 is a massive step up, I think that's quite common in a lot of superhero movies. Dark Knight, obviously, compared to Batman Begins. Although I actually have a lot of time for Batman Begins. But I know, generally speaking, people think it's a, it's a quantum leap forward. Um, I, I'd say Spider-Man 2 and Terminator 2 are both big steps up from from their predecessors mm. well Terminator, Terminator 2 maybe yeah. I agree I agree with you but when I've said that before people tend to get angry and fair so there enough there are people who are like Terminator is better Terminator is great but T2 is better so maybe it's not Quantum Leap alright the, the, the biggest gulf in quality between a number one and a number two is of course Star Trek The Wrath of Khan mm. um, which is from a different universe in terms of quality. I don't know, Helen. They forgot to put in a 30-minute shot of a spaceship docking at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so. They forgot to wear flesh-coloured trousers that came down over their shoes, <laughs> um, which alone, frankly, would be enough to, uh, to justify <laughs> a, a higher placement. So, yeah, those, are, those would be my choices. Mm. How do you feel about Evil Dead 2, Chris? <laughs> you quite I, like that in thing. In no more than five minutes. You know, I can take it or leave it, really. Um, but compared to the first one? Oh, Yeah. Well, given that it remakes the first one in the first five minutes, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, Are there people out there who think the first one's no, better? No, they're not. There's no one. I've never met anyone who thinks Evil Dead, uh, Raimi's Evil Dead, is better than Evil Dead Two. Uh, I've met people who think Army Darkness is the best one, but they are mental. Um, no, Evil Dead Two is 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 a phenomenal uh, leap up in terms of confidence and budget and style and humor, especially humor. Uh, mm. And that's one of the reasons why I love it. And and incidentally, I am hosting a screening of Evil Dead 2 uh, at the Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley on Friday, June 6th. Uh, so I think tickets for that are available now. So check out the Phoenix website, uh, East Finchley, Phoenix, great little local independent cinema. And it's a late show on Friday, June 6th. So if tickets are still available... Do uh, do buy them, please, and listen to me introduce Evil Dead 2 and talk about it more intelligently than I am now. I'm going to throw in um, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and also yes. Mad Max 2. Yes, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I think Azkaban, for me, the two Chris Columbus movies are borderline awful. And the, the Azkaban was such an improvement. In almost every conceivable way. Having done all the interviews for the with the Harry Potter cast and crew for our big Harry Potter shindig at the end of the of the series, what was interesting to me is that every single person paid a lot of tribute to both Chris Columbus and Quaron. Um, Chris Columbus, because he had a, a very difficult job of, of explaining this whole world. And, and those two first films, there's lots of stuff that you would normally edit out, but you can't because otherwise later films don't make any sense unless you leave it in. So he had a lot of kind of heavy lifting to do in terms of establishing the world. And that's why the first two films still feel incredibly stodgy and slow as heck. But then they they also credit Quaron because, of course, he came in and started to shake things up a bit and started to 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 give everybody the chance, every all the direct, or the both directors who followed him, the chance to actually do their own thing and, and shake up the format as well. So um, while I agree that Columbus's films are not as fun and flighty as as Azkaban, I think he does deserve a little bit of credit for having maybe a harder job. But yeah, Azkaban's fantastic. And Mad Max 2, yes. Absolutely, definitely. Ali, you got anything? I would say that Days of Future Past is a quantum leap ahead of First Class. I know you're a fan of First Class, but I think First Class is fine. It's okay. Whereas I think Days of Future Past, I know I'm going to want to watch several times over, quite a few times over. So yeah, I, I just more recently, that has been very impressive, I'd say. 
Has there ever been a comedy sequel that's been better than the original? Well, Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2. Okay. <laughs> right. And Naked Gun 2 and a Half, Alan. You missed that bit. Naked Gun 2 and a Half, like, I can almost go with almost, but but not Ghostbusters 2, I'm afraid. But yeah, that that's always been the thing. I mean, I'd be interested if anybody out there has any comedy sequels that are incontrovertibly better than the original. It's very rare, isn't it? Mm. Although the National, how, what about the National... Bogus Journey does have its uh, supporters, actually. Bogus that's, Journey. An, that's an interesting one. Yeah. I, I, main, I saw them in a double bill at the Prince Charles last year. I maintain that Excellent Adventure is still the funniest. Mm. I've got a couple of responses to the previous week's questions. Oh, right, cool, cool. Mm. Some people were suggesting that Will Smith, he is an actor. He was an actor, then he became a musician, then he became an actor. So this is a question that... They were wondering whether he could be included in, the, in an answer to the question of what musicians became good actors. Uh, somebody called Adam Fowler at Adam Fowler ITV says, I cannot believe you omitted Michael Jackson despite his Oscar-worthy turns in both Moonwalker and Men in Black 2. Shame on you. Well, that's us told. There was, uh, just to chip in quickly on that, uh, there was a Reddit AMA Q&A with Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar Binks, obviously, in the Star Wars prequels, and he was asked about casting, and he said that George Lucas had approached Michael Jackson first about playing Jar Jar. I don't know whether that was a joke or not, but it sounded like he was being serious. I choose to believe that that actually happened. That's a a pretty crazy idea that I'm willing to pretend is real. Good. Agreed. James Dibble, who I've mispronounced the name of, he says that Entourage, this is a separate question, should have ended much earlier. And it's interesting that's one that's getting a uh, film spin-off. Hopefully they'll be able to take the goodwill it's built up after, you know, so many years on HBO and, and, and DVD that people have gone, you know what, I'm ready for a, ready for a new slice of, of E. Did go on too long. <laughs> it did go on too long. Uh, I hope the film's good. But it certainly, uh, it started off as, as a really funny, sparky fun show and it became about the sort of le- not particularly interesting relationships. And, yeah. <laughs> and a plane at the end. And a big old private jet, yeah. Uh, yeah, someone else uh, suggested Jared Leto. Again, he, he didn't he kind of act first? I mean, my so-called life, I would have thought, predated yeah, uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. Very good point. Well done. So take that person who suggested Jared Leto. If you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, you can tweet us. We're at Empire Magazine. Please use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, you can Facebook us. We're Empire Magazine on Facebook. And you can email us at podcast at Online. Com. Okay, now it's time for our first interview of the week. Sam Riley uh, shot to fame as Ian Curtis in Anton Corbine's Control. And since then, the Leeds-born star has largely shied away from Hollywood's glare, taking part in smaller indie-oriented fare. Although he did act alongside Jason Statham, didn't he, Nick, in a film you were on set of? Indeed. Indeed. What was it called? 13? <laughs> I've literally forgotten. It was called 13. It was a, a director remaking his own film. Interesting cast. Mickey Rourke, Jason Statham, Ray Winston. Ray Winston. Ray Winston and Jason Statham playing brothers. All right, yeah. Uh, 50 Cent was in it, um, and Sam Riley was the hero. And it's all about Russian roulette, people being forced to play Russian roulette. Amazing. He talks about having seen it on pirate DVD for the first time, but that was a few years ago. I'm not sure. I think it might have come out here since. I think it's come out. So that's interesting. That is out on DVD now, so we should check it out. We should have a little 13 night. Uh, he breaks his duck this week opposite Angela. Sorry. He breaks his big budget duck this week opposite Angelina Jolie in Magnif... No, it's not Magnificent. He breaks his big budget duck this week opposite Angelina Jolie in Maleficent and Helen went along to speak to him recently. This was before either Helen or Sam Riley had seen the film in question. That's true. Okay. (laughs) He's also very self-deprecating, so, you know... Poor guy. Give him, give him a break. He's he's really hard on himself, and the levels were a little yes. bit high here. So you might want to, you know, turn down your headphones. It takes about fourteen minutes if you can't handle the Riley. He's proper Riley. Here we are. The life of Riley. Enjoy. 
Maleficent, we obviously haven't seen it yet. No, so me neither. What can you tell us about Dieval? Well, Dieval begins the movie as a raven. Right. And uh, Maleficent rescues him from being killed by a farmer okay. and turns him into a man at the last minute, which terrifies the farmer. And for saving my life, I swear allegiance right. to Angelina. Natural reaction. Natural reaction. Um, and then she can turn me into whatever... She sort of turns me into whatever she feels like, kind of. <laughs> sure, she can do that with a lot of men, probably. But mm. it begins as a more servile sort of uh, relationship. But then over time, they become more like... A, a bit like a bickering married couple, to some extent, I would say. <laughs> that was one of my questions, actually. Is he more of a sidekick or a confidant? Kind of somewhere well, in between. Got, yeah, I guess it's some somewhere in between he he kind of can he can see the the good in her which she wants to uh ignore or right. not acknowledge <laughs> um but yeah it's a it's a but it's a partnership but at the same time she's the boss yeah yeah you can tell just by the outfit you know with the, the high collar you know the yeah. horns she looks like the she's, boss yeah she's gonna win <laughs> what about the other things that Diaval turns into because I think there was a wolf and a horse there's type a wolf thing. and a horse and a dragon hey oh so in this story it's it's not Maleficent herself no, who's the dragon no it's she turns uh, Diaval into the dragon okay I didn't have to be there on those days <laughs> <laughs> so there was no kind of performance capture or any of that no I mean I did it was a strange one because I like to do my homework before I roles and things or and I didn't really know what to do with this one <laughs> there were so many different things so but we did some interesting I, I, I worked with a movement coach from uh, Central S School of Drama mm -hmm. I never went to drama school so it was kind of like being at drama school for a day I was kind of relieved I didn't go to drama school after that although it was very helpful it's it were it, it kind of it was kind of embarrassing to begin with because well first of all we got a raven into a room and i just sort of studied yeah i watched him do so his, he just sort of hopped around do his thing he, he hopped around he could do tricks but they're incredible creatures they're huge they're much bigger than a crow and they have very strong personalities they're quite vain which i tried to incorporate and then the, then, then the raven left and then I sort of tried to sort of move in a way like a raven. By the end of the session, I was actually running around a room flapping my arms <laughs> in a thing. She was like, should we film this? I was like, I've, under no circumstances. <laughs> please Shh, let please, us never. <laughs> please no, don't even tell anyone I've done it. And But it was kind of helpful because there's quite a lot of pressure. I felt uh, pressure work, you know, arriving on a big set like this. It's, it's different from anything I've done mm. before. And sort of running around a room like a pillock, waving my arms around. So sort of, it kind of released me from a lot of uh, anxieties in some way. It, it was it was quite liberating, yeah. although it felt humiliating a couple of times. I guess if, if it's something like that and you're going into such a huge production, you want to feel like I've done all I can do at least and whatever happens, you know, well, won't exactly. be because and, I didn't. And they want, you know, the idea also was that the characters from the fairyland mm -hmm. are sort of was that I would have a, be an Irish bird. So I worked a lot with a dialect coach as well. I mean, I've seen the commitments probably a hundred times, but uh, <laughs> go and shite. Uh, 
But obviously, I can't say anything like that in the. No. Um, that does rule out about ninety percent of the dialogue in the it, commitments. It can't. Yeah, it kind of, kind of sports it really, but. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, it's you, you know you want to be as prepared as possible and feel like you've uh, prepared. Yeah. But it was a strange one. That just reminded me. Ben Barnes apparently prepared for his Spanish accent in the Narnia films by watching The Princess Bride and Inigo Montoya. I guess it was. Good so accent, you know, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm just and delighted looked, that I looked at a raven looked at the for an hour. Yeah, and the commitments. Yeah. <laughs> um, fucking Suzuki. It's a great film. The commitments. Absolutely amazing. I love opinion. it. Keeping the music theme, I guess. Uh, Anna Shepard, the costume designer, was talking about designing Diavel a bit like a rock star. So you, I, I believe you happen to pick up the clothes from a nearby scarecrow who happens to be dressed all in who quite cool. Who dressed like Jim Morrison. Yeah, it was <laughs> convenient. Um, well, I think an Angelina's costume is... There's a lot of le- real, you know, real leather, incredible artistry in this stuff. And... It sort of developed. I came over quite a lot of times to London and I, I tried some. There were some crazy uh, looks. I mean, I had uh, at one stage I had, you know, pointy ears with hair coming out of it and a sort of gray, grayish wig. And the, and it's in the end, they sort of, from having masses on, they sort of gradually toned it, toned it down and brought it brought it down and uh i think it was rob stromberg's idea and angelina's that it he was in the end when he's human more human than some of the versions that we that we tried mm. I, I guess it, it sort of ties him in a bit more with her as well because he's got like it looks like a similar sort of scale of prosthetics in terms of you know little adjustments rather than full scale kind of i mean there were people that had i it was very i found that quite uh uh, not a challenge, but very different to spend so long in 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 makeup. Mm. I think mine was like three and a half hours, four hours. I managed to work out a way of being able to fall asleep while they were doing it after the first month or something, until they once stuck my nose on the wrong way around and then wouldn't let me sleep after that. They said that I had to sit upright, which. But I could never really complain because there were other people being brought in at sort of three o'clock in the morning mm. to be ready at nine o'clock. I mean, Peter Capaldi. We met each other on one of the first days and we were chatting away and he's a big punk fan and we were talking about Joy Division and things and then he had to run off and go to costume and makeup and about, well, about six hours later, uh, this guy comes out, walks up to me across the thing who looks like, uh, it's really bizarre because they're so good that it looks like a real whatever the fuck it was you know like his ears were sort of a foot long on either side and he said so anyway yeah what's your favorite album or something like that and i was like who are you who are you (laughs) peter and it it, it really was incredible i mean they really they don't look human they look like some crazy creature but at the same time they don't look like they've got any makeup on it's Mm. really they're incredible yeah and the, this i mean i was on set and the sets and stuff were, were amazing it must have been quite fun from that point of view it's like this is what movie making is that's what you think it well, is one imagines that there's a lot of blue or green screen or whatever and there, there's a there's an element of that but i mean the the sets really were ex- extraordinary i mean and to be able to go to stand in something real and see real waterfalls and is a bit is a benefit for the actor you know you you really you see what it is where you are you know and surely things happen in the background and things but i mean it was really 
you know every every element of it the makeup and the costume and the set designing was mm. no pressure you know. <laughs> you're in the middle of this giant yeah thing. no pressure that'd be good wouldn't they <laughs> but do you are you the kind of person who has like a career plan who seeks actively to do something different than you've done before each time because I've, I've read interviews where you were slightly worried about getting stuck in a sort of suicidal artistic mode um for the rest it's of not a career. bad mode <laughs> It's a lucky, it's it's quite a cool uh, uh, typecasting, I suppose. To, uh, there are worse. Yeah. Um, I don't really, you know, I daydream about the sort of roles I'd like to play, but really I just want to keep working. I want to stay in the game. There's a lot of, it's, it's hard at the moment. Mm. I mean, it's a great time in some ways to be a British actor at the moment because I think just about all the superheroes are British. Practically uh, all, yeah. And uh, and certainly know, all the villains. All, and the villains have always been, you know. There's, but at the same time, there, there's a lot of competition because you know there are a lot of very, there are a lot of great actors mm. out there of my generation who are all a little higher up the food chain than uh, than I am. You say no to a lot, I do, and you you can only say yes to what you're offered, if you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, you you can plan it or you can daydream about certain things, but you kind of have to say yes to the things that are put on, put in front of you. Yeah. And so far I've been lucky, but that was, um, I did a film in German. I did a German film uh, last year. Is that the dark Valley? Yeah. yeah. And I did. And, but this is, uh, I was really excited about doing something like this. I mean, I I'm more, I, ca- I, I went for the audition more or less because, you know, I live in Berlin and I think people forget that I exist. Uh, my agent tells me that anyway. So he <laughs> says that you've got to come over occasionally for things. And I, it sounded like a great part. And I wanted, I, who wouldn't want to work with Angelina? And it sounded very different. You know, I don't smoke in it. I don't <laughs> die and I don't, uh, you know, it's healthy. But I didn't really hold out much uh, hope for it. But when I got it, I was really, I, I was really pleased. Because it's more interesting. It's, I wanted to see what it was like to work on something this sort mm. of scale. When the cameras are rolling, it's all the same. But the stuff that goes on behind is a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> Looks it as yeah. well. Um, I mean, but I mean, has has that kind of? I mean, because you had some kind of setbacks early on. Obviously, you know, from from your music career. With ten thousand things, and then you know, there's stuff like thirteen getting delayed for ages and ages and ages. And the first time um, I saw that was when the guy in a pub in Yorkshire, landlord, when I was going back home to visit my family, said, uh, "I saw that thirteen, and it was two years after I'd shot it, and I hadn't seen it." <laughs> so my premiere of thirteen was watching a pirate copy of the landlord in the Menston Arms or something. The very first film I was in was Twenty Four Hour Party People, and I went. I auditioned to play the drummer of Joy Division, ironically, mm-hmm. oh. but couldn't drum. And I had a black eye because I'd been punched in Leeds. And the director thought I looked more like Marquis Smith because he was always getting punched by his bandmates and things like that. So I had one scene in that. I took five mates to the cinema when it came out and I wasn't in it. They they cut me out. And I was, so I wasn't, they're disappoint, they, they, they are disappointing moments to some extent because one hopes, you know, it was my first lead in an American movie with Mickey Rourke, who was just nominated for the Oscar while we were shooting it, and Ray Winston and Jason Statham and everybody. And I was, you know, the lead or something. So I thought, you know, that's pretty cool, being in a lead in an American movie. But that's 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 the biz. Mm. But it's just one... I don't, you know, 
Fortunately, in a way, having had the experiences with the music business, I'm not really, I don't have particularly high hopes. I'd say they were more realistic and nothing. Slightly philosophical. Nothing really surprises me. Yeah. I think that's a good, but that's a good way to be. I I think it's a healthy thing to be in this business because there are a lot of disappointments. I mean, and you learn to protect yourself from it. But then again, I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, I had another one where I I really wanted it. I was, it was between me and another one. And although you don't want to think about it afterwards, you you know, it's it's natural. But you have to have a good, you have to just think, well, it's going to be shit anyway. Probably will be. They've clearly made the wrong choice, right? They've obviously no taste. (laughs) And you've been working with, I mean, great people. I mean, Byzantium last year last year which i can't remember which year it came out i think last year uh, was you know was terrific with with neil jordan and you know you've you're clearly getting talked about angelina i think had seen was it control she was a fan of she wanted you yeah amazingly yeah i mean that's that's so funny because it's not i mean it did you know it's really got me every job i think more or less since then and i kind of i kind of had a feeling that that would probably be the case you know it's 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 given me a certain amount of grace but it's funny because you know it was a big, f- it was it was great for my career and and everything. But it wasn't, it, it didn't make me rec, you know, I wasn't recognisable on the street yeah. then or something. But it's amazing who's seen it. I think that's sometimes the best way to break through is the films that all the industry sees, but but that don't mean you get hounded by screaming fans in the streets. Which I guess you know, I mean, like Christmas Stewart in, of course, of course. But Christmas Stewart in on the road, you know, would have been in the middle of this kind of crazy maelstrom. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean. I'd never really. Uh, I've I've seen it with musicians because we played with people that were big, you know. Mm. But uh, that was quite. I was very relieved that I started doing this when I was twenty-six, mm. and could handle it. I, well, I was a bit more. I, I, th- I have a lot of admiration f- for her. I think there are a lot of other actresses of her age that that have gone off the rails with such attention. But I think she takes the job very seriously and chooses well. I thought that looked like a difficult life. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what's next for you? There's obviously Dark Valley and, and Sweet Frances, I guess. And have you got... That's coming out in September, I think, or something. And the Dark Valley, I don't know whether that's ever going to come out over here. Um, and Austrian Western does sound a bit... Schnitzel know, Western. But it's. Uh, I'm going to the German... Film Academy Awards on Friday and it's it's got eight nominations and it's it's done really well in in Austria and Germany. I mean, I didn't do it. I just thought it sounded nuts. It sounded like a, and I've always wanted to play a cowboy, a German one. <laughs> um, and just one very very quick last question. I read that you have a flaming sambuca scar. Is this true? Yes, it is. I think I don't know whether you can still see it or not. There's a circle here in my hand. You can see it with my hands. Oh cold. yeah, kind of bit. Yeah. I mean, I did that the night of the premiere of Control in Berlin with my father. <laughs> so, what chance do I have? Wow. But it's a way to always remember the film. Yes, and not to stick your hand on a hot glass. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Movie news time now. What do we have? What have we got? Should we start with the news that Edgar Wright left Ant-Man? I know this happened on Friday of last week. Yeah. Uh, after the podcast had gone up. But this is the, the news that Edgar Wright uh, and Marvel have parted ways after almost a decade trying to bring Ant-Man to the big screen. Uh, 
and Marvel are now trying to find a new director. Uh, what do we think about this? I think it's a real shame. I mean, Edgar, obviously, it was a passion project for him, I think, uh, one that he had spent a lot of time talking about, thinking about, writing, developing, putting together. I mean, you know, his, sort of his lead cast in place was pretty much ready to go. But um, but Disney, someone quite very high up at Disney, I think, had concerns about the script and the story, uh, came back with a draft that, that Edgar wasn't happy with, and the two have reportedly... Um, that's parted ways on a fairly, you know, um, amicable and mutual basis. But it is it is a real shame for everyone concerned. Um, I I can't imagine, you know, who can step into those shoes. But you know, I guess somebody will. Yeah, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, I'm re- I'm gutted to be honest. I, Edgar yeah. and Joe are fantastic. Joe Cornish. Joe Cornish. Um, they've been working on this for I believe at least eight years. Uh, since 2006, I think it was it was first it started being reported that they were working on this, and those two guys with a huge budget and a really great cast, Paul Rudd, really excited about seeing yeah. him in a big, you know, he's still gonna gonna be in a version of it. Michael Douglas, you know, I I was so excited about this film, so I'm I'm very sad that uh, it seems to be kind of falling apart a bit. Apparently, they already have another director. I'm sure they do. They have to move fast. These things. Who the heck is gonna want to do? They need it. new crew as well. A lot of the crew came with Edgar, and he's, they've got to go too. It's like um, whenever you have a situation like this where you have a start date and you have sets built and you have things on the go, you have to move fast. You can't take two or three weeks to choose someone. It's like when Lynn, Lynn Ramsey left, Jane got her gun. She was replaced within a couple of days by Gavin O'Connor. So yeah, they have to move fast. I do feel sorry for the poor schmo coming in because they're going to get a lot of geek hostility. There's yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of people who are, are up in arms over this. And this is a really interesting time, I think, for Marvel because they have done nothing they haven't put a foot wrong for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, if you believe what you read on the internet, it was Edgar Wright's decision to walk away. He wasn't fired. He wasn't removed from the project. Uh, they would have been happy for him to carry on and make that version of Ant-Man. It might not necessarily have been the version he wanted to make, but there you go. Uh, but they're coming out of this looking like the bad guys. And if you believe what you read on the internet, that there is some interference now with Kevin Feige and the brain trust at Marvel, then that does that bode well, really, for the future? I mean, these guys, you know, without interference from Disney, put the Avengers together. I think they know what they're doing. It should you be know, said, though, that they, they do have a history, going back before the Disney merger, of having quite tumultuous productions. And true. Directors being fired, and true, there's but been the same a lot time, of stuff behind the scenes, more than usual, I'd say. True, but at the same time, this is a director and a project that Kevin Feige has chased for six, seven, eight years, and... It seems weird to me that six weeks from the start of filming, they would suddenly turn around and go, oh, actually, this doesn't feel right to us. And I think as well, I mean, there's been tumult behind the scenes in the same way that there's tumult behind the scenes at, at Pixar. And that, that seems to have been historically geared towards making the absolute best film possible and making one that, you know, to an extent fits in with the Mar- Marvel ethos and fits into the wider picture. But, you know, it, it's also about making each film work on its very much on its own merits. Um, if, there's, if there's interference coming from higher up, the chain, um, maybe on a more short-term, you know, let's make a film that makes lots of money basis, that would be a worry. If if indeed that is what's happening, we don't yeah. know for sure. I we do wonder yeah. if the environment has changed there from the studio that made Iron Man. Now the expectation is that each film has to make at least a billion dollars. I think they've, they've had this amazing run recently. Well, I'm not sure any version of Ant-Man is going to make a billion, but well, things have changed in the last five years, I'd say. They've had two movies that have made a billion. There's no expectation that every film makes a billion, but there yeah. is an expectation that but every film... There's more pressure, though, I'd say. There's, there's an expectation that every film makes 500 million. Precisely. And I do wonder if Ant-Man... 
uh, an Edgar Wright-centric Ant-Man, which I think would be fantastic and look visually amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would be a bit too weird, a bit too out there maybe. Uh, so they want something that's a little bit more homogenised. But I don't understand because Kevin Feige was saying such wonderful things of... Yes, Kevin Feige said I to me... I want to have Edgar Wright on because he is Edgar Wright, not yeah. because he isn't Edgar Wright or that he, we can manipulate him or whatever. Six weeks ago, Kevin Feige said to me, the interviews in Empire, uh, issue 299, uh, the only reason we're making Ant-Man is because of Edgar Wright. And now they don't have Edgar Wright. So you would argue, do they really need to make Ant-Man? But then they're so far down the path. They have a you know they have this two-movie release schedule 2015, they have Avengers, which will come out and destroy everything in front of, in its path in, in May. Then Ant Man's coming out in July. So what you know what what do they do really? They can't leave a gap in their schedule because that'll just that's a that's a big money pit. They might as well just throw money into it. Um, and it's, I don't think any other film is ready to go. Mm. So they have to carry on with Ant Man. And then an Ant Man without Edgar Wright is a little bit even more of a risk. I mean, you know, Edgar isn't maybe a, a huge box office you know, draw in his own right, but he has a really loyal fan base who would be cheering that that film to the heavens, I think, Um, as well as then, you know, hopefully doing brilliantly on its own merits. But I think maybe the the question here is, you know, what's the sort of the wider picture for Marvel and Disney? Because I think, you know, something like Guardians of the Galaxy, which has also been painted very much as a risk for the studio, if it succeeds, has a huge payoff because it opens up the Marvel Cinematic Universe to literally the universe. You can you can go galaxy hopping, you can have the Avengers going into space, you can have whatever the heck that opens up for you. Ant-Man has a less obvious payoff beyond itself, you know? Especially because they've, uh, they've retconned the Marvel Cinematic sure, Universe yeah. to accommodate Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. Uh, again, something Faggy said to me, you know, because Ultron, the bad guy of Avengers 2, is in the comics, created by Hank Pym, played yeah. by Michael Douglas and Ant-Man. Now, that's not going to be the case in Avengers 2. Um, I think we've all worked out who creates Ultron in that one. Um, but it's you know it's interesting that they've, they've had to move things around in their in the MCU to accommodate Ant-Man. And now, I don't know, it just, it just I, I, I don't know, it just feels to me like it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a massive shame. Um, and was, was all that manipulation, was all that movement of stuff really worth yeah. it in the end? Well, fingers crossed. I mean, whoever steps on board, I guess, good luck. But uh, but we're really, really gutted for Edgar's sake and we hope he mm. does something fabulous soon. Um, there was slightly happier news in the Marvel Cinematic mm. Universe, uh, I guess, the or Marvel TV universe, in, in the shape of Netflix's Daredevil. Now, first of all came the worrying news. Drew Goddard uh, left the product and project because he has to concentrate on his uh, Spider-Man spin-off Sinister Six and realised he wouldn't have time to do both. Um, So he has left. He's been replaced by Stephen S. DeKnight, who's another kind of Joss Whedon uh, collaborator from way back. He'll now be uh, running the Daredevil TV show. And they have found their their Matt Murdock, their lead, and that will be Charlie Cox, um, probably best known to most as uh, the star of Stardust um, more recently, um, doing very good work on broad, uh, Boardwalk Empire, so uh, so he gets his chance to mm-hmm. to step up as Daredevil, which you know he seems like a reasonable piece of casting. Yeah, uh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, when was in the um, the edit suite of uh, Secret Service last week, uh, talking to Matthew Vaughn, who obviously had has cast an unknown, yeah, uh, as the lead in Kingsman: The Secret Service. Um, not sure about that retitle, but anyway, uh, Taron Egerton. And he's completely unknown. First film. It's never been in the movie set before, and he's the lead in this, this massive movie. And, you know, I said to I said to Fon, you know, you've got this incredible track record for spotting 
talent. He was the first guy to really take a gamble on Daniel Craig as a as a leading man in Layer Cake. He discovered Aaron Taylor Johnson uh, essentially with Kick Ass. He discovered Chloe Moretz with Kick Ass, and uh, Charlie Cox was someone he took. And Henry Cavill was in Stardust as well. Mm-hmm. He took a gamble on Charlie Cox and Stardust, and Charlie Cox was the one who hadn't really hit home for me. Uh, I don't watch Boardwalk Empire, but even so, he's like a minor, major part. No, he's not like the lead in Boardwalk no. Empire. So it's good now to see him finally getting the chance. And, you know, basically, if if Matthew Fond discovers you, it seems to me you got something about you. It does, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. The Encouraging ma- stuff. Uh, if you're listening, Matthew Fond, what are the lottery numbers for next week, please? I'd really like to know. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, very, very intrigued by that. Anything else? Stephen Knight recently brought us... Uh, Lock and before that Hummingbird uh, as previously mentioned he is now writing the sequel to World War Z and I think the most notable thing about this isn't that our writer has got a writing gig but the reaction we've been getting online to this story has been overwhelmingly positive. It was, it's was it been up on Facebook as I look at it now for approximately 8 hours and it's knocking on 1.5 thousand likes people came round to that film like, and they may have not seen it in the cinema or they may have just seen it on you know, streaming services or whatever but there's a whole lot of love there now and uh, I think he is obviously a great writing talent and I'd love to see what he's going to do with it also it would be lovely that they did a, a mini-series still of the original book and, and actually did that justice but for what it's worth that's quite exciting mm. Zombie in a car Zombie in a car <laughs> that would be great you called it World War C which really upsets me yeah, but that's, that's the, the name of the yeah. book. The writer actually doesn't mind, but um, but Z no. rhymes with three, so it works on the next. Said, <laughs> shall I say a few, a few? Little yeah, I have a few things. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, just very quickly, uh, very exciting news on the Jurassic World front. Colin Trevorrow has confirmed that Jurassic World will have a golf course. Um, <laughs> he he talked. He has talked in a recent interview and talked all about the park and said really interesting, exciting things. Said that one of the angles of the movie is that going to be that the point at which the film takes place people are kind of over dinosaurs and he said a bit, a bit of concept art that inspired him was the idea of this kid on his phone with his back to a T-Rex and he's all, there were people already kind of jaded about dinosaurs which sounds really interesting angle and the other thing I wanted to bring up is that Tarantino will be shooting Hateful Eight his western which looked like it might not happen uh, apparently he's gearing up to do it in November uh, they'll be shooting in Wyoming with the cast that he assembled for a table read in LA recently which includes Kurt Russell Bruce Dern Samuel L. Jackson. Wait, wait, wait. Samuel Jackson? Yeah. In a Quentin Tarantino movie? Yeah, amazing. Uh, everything Colin Trevorrow says uh, about Jurassic World ticks all the right boxes for me. I think he really knows what he's doing. I really like Safety Not Guaranteed. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I think it could be genuinely really, really good. Mm. I'm, I'm, I, I like the combination of uh, Omar Sy and Chris Pratt as well. He sort of said that they have a you know, strange buddy relationship, which actually just the two of them, I think, is, is a really nice piece of casting. They should be really interesting together. So, yeah, I'm yeah. excited. In issue 300 of, uh, of Empire, we had a long interview with Colin Trevorrow where he basically implied that there are going to be genetically modified dinosaurs in this movie, which is very interesting indeed. So I cannot wait to see what he does with that. Going to Hateful Light here, just 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 for a second. Why do you think this is all? You know, we're all guesswork here. But why has he gone back and forth so much about this? This is this should have been so easy, and he seems to have made such a meal of it. Mm. So what if people have read the script? I mean, people had read the script of Django Unchained, and people were still excited about that. It just seemed to be such a public thing that it kind of riled him. Anyway, for what it's worth, I'm still excited about it. Uh, I don't know if anybody had any reports on on how the table read went 
um, very well, apparently. Um, he said that there was still work to be done on the ending of that. But I think okay. I think that was really what what I think his his initial reaction a couple of months ago was just, you know, hurt and anger that this had gotten out. Um, and and the, the real issue for him seemed to be I only gave this to six people because mm. it's not ready for public consumption, and a sort of an, a, a feeling of betrayal that one of those people had had somehow through carelessness or whatever let it let it slip wider. It's so, interesting that sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting that the people he gave it to that all in the final cast yeah. so he seems to have resolved perhaps it, the leak didn't come from one of the actors yes I think it's he's definitely happy that it didn't come from one of them I think wasn't there scuttlebutt at the time that it came from somebody's agent or some 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 office down the line or there's something there's a long history of Tarantino yeah. scripts leaking I think the difference is perhaps now that with, with websites and blogs being what they are I mean he actually tried to sue a website for posting a link to it and that got thrown out but I think yeah, I think it's um, it's the fact that it wasn't finished that it was a sort of a you know something he still wasn't quite happy with and that sense of betrayal. So I think having had the chance to kind of calm down about it and see that people really responded mm. to and liked the script um, in its in its current form, I think has, has obviously you know g'd him up a bit and maybe you know given him Jeez, some kind of enthusiasm for it once again. Yeah, apparently he was very exuberant at the table read. He was reading the stage directions out in a very dramatic way in a South African accent. Or was well, Australian? <laughs> I mean, it's... oh, you're referring to his Django Unchained character. Yeah, when he was from Peru, like stuff went down. I'm a staunch defender of Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. I think he's he's really actually really good in that. As oh, Jimmy, yeah. that is that is as may be. But in Django, in Django Unchained, he's not good. <laughs> I like his accent of that. Tell me where it's from. It's it's from Wallab- Wallabaloo. <laughs> it's from Wallabaloo. It's from uh, you know, Ramsey Street. It's from it's Crocodile from Dundee a... too. Yeah, it's from Hey, the- there's a comedy sequel that absolutely <laughs> stabs the first one in the forehead. And don't get me started on three, because that is, wow, LA didn't see that coming. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Helen, you want you a couple more things? Oh, just a quick one. Um, my Big Fat Greek Wedding is getting a Big Fat sequel. Um, After the TV show did so well, they thought, let's do it again. There was a TV yeah, show. There, there was, was a TV yeah, show. Yeah, it didn't do so well. And it crashed and burned. Wasn't um, it uh, Nia Fadarlos in it? What, did she have anything to do with it? I or? think a lot of the supporting cast were. I don't believe she was. I think she was involved behind the scenes. There, there was also another movie she was involved with, which was marketed as a sequel to this, which involved a character that she plays going around the Greek islands as a kind of a tour guide. It's not really a sequel, but I don't know. This may, movie made Tom Hanks and the other producers a huge amount of money. It's it's easy to forget just how much of a smash hit this was. It cost nothing and was like. 200 plus million just it's 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 an amazing film if you look back on it it doesn't really stand up uh, but you know who knows there might be still enough goodwill it's fine it's likable and sweet uh, i think if they actually manage to recapture that and don't sort of stretch too hard for laughs then it could be something quite good i was always um affronted by john corbett's mullet in that movie <laughs> yeah it is terrible hair terrible awful hair um he's a lovely man but get a haircut before the next one please and thank mm. you sir yeah that's not good business at the front uh, and we should also mention <laughs> yeah we should also mention that uh, it is new empire time right uh, issue 301 of the world's biggest movie magazine it has now hit the newsstands with a Godzilla-esque thump and it is our 301 greatest movies of all time issue uh, you voted in your thousands we counted them up in our thousands and the results are there uh, for all to see. Uh, do I want to give away what number one is? Number one's on the website. It's on the website. We, yeah. Uh, the greatest film of all time, according to Empire Readers, is 
uh, The Empire Strikes Back I almost forgot what it was there and the 301st greatest film of all time is The Bicycle Thieves The Really? Yep Wow, okay. And then in between, there are 299 films. There are some crackers. There are some interesting choices. I think it's fair to say. I think it's fair to say that, yeah. yes. That if, if We Had Our Druthers as a, as a magazine might not necessarily be on the list. Prometheus! Uh, but the readers have spoken. And so there they are. There, and there's some some very, very interesting choices indeed. So do pick it up. Let's just yeah. say Shia LaBeouf has been voting a lot. <laughs> He's a big Prometheus fan. <laughs> I would also say that um, the, the 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 301 list itself it's not just a list. There are some fabulous features in there. We've um, we've got a sort of an oral history of the making of Braveheart, which has some some horses stuff that you've got to read to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, exclusive onset photos from um, the collection of Cyan Field, the director of Zulu, um, which are absolutely fascinating. Many of them never before seen. John Logan and Sam Mendes on mostly John Logan. It must be said on Skyfall. Yeah, um, and Sam Mendes pointing out that um, forty-five, which is the ranking of Skyfall, was the age he was when he started making the film. Oh, interesting. Hot fact. Yes, blimey. Um, we also have uh, the secrets to the ending of Planet of the Apes. There's, all, uh, you know, everybody knows what it is, but how did it come about? How did it get there? We've got that full story. We've got the story of Orson Welles on set of The Third Man, mm-hmm. which is fascinating and really an essential read for any um, Welles fans out there. We have George Lucas, uh, of course, talking about our number one. Yeah, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, a 90-minute interview with George Lucas, the interview conducted. I was, I was listening to him do it, and I was looking at my watch going, this is amazing. And, you know, he's retired now, George, so he's got lots of time knocking around. So uh, lots, you know, before Countdown, he sat down and he watched <laughs> and he talked to Ian Freer for loads and loads of, uh, of time, which is great. Plus all the usual movie news and reviews, obviously, so do check that out. Uh, we have great set visits inside as well. Uh, in between, there's two Monsters Dark Continents in there as well. 22 Jump Street is, is in there also. And in the slate, we have a very, very funny pint of milk with Rupert Grint uh, and a wonderful uh, trawl through Ken Loach's uh, amazing uh, and much storied career. Sorry, I really loved the movie Mastermind this month. Nick, I know you orchestrated that. It's a good one. I didn't do it myself. Who that was it? Alex Godfrey. It is Malcolm McDowell. Ooh. And um, he is he's on fire. He remembers his lines. He knows his stuff he's got in a brain some detail. Him, it turns out. Although he, he, he doesn't beat Sir Bing Kingsley. The Bing. He, he's annoyed about that. Um... Yeah, it, there's some other cool stuff in the issue. One of my favourite little things is um, the writers of Alan Partridge on Inception. And if you're a fan of Alan, uh, you'll know that he, uh, in one of the Mid Morning Matters episodes, he tries very hard to, to book a ticket for Inception. <laughs> and we find out what he probably went to see instead. <laughs> which I think is personally worth three ninety nine on the side. That's amazing. And our, our, our editor, Mark Dinning, went on set of uh, Transformers 4, so you don't have to. And he talked to Michael Bay. And we got lots of exclusive stuff in there about... Transformers Age of Extinction as well. Have we got amazing Transformers Age of Extinction blueprints? Yes, we do. Let me just double check. Oh, that's good. Yes, there they are. They're massive and they pull out. Page 34. There we go. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing issue. It's a fantastic issue. So it's available now. All good and evil news agents. Just three ninety nine. Just £3.99. Amazing. That's nothing. Plus, it's also on the iPad as well, so you can download it. And there was a fabulous subscribers cover this month, so, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. so look out for that. That's amazing. Uh, do you get it if you subscribe now? You do. You go onto the website into empireonline.com, and there will be a link, if you look out for it, to subscribe anew. It's not as the same as the £18 deal, which means that you just get 12 If you subscribe now for the £18 deal, you'll get the next issue. But we're aware that this is such a special subscriber's cover that you can subscribe in a separate offer and make sure that your first issue will be this one. 
It is uh, Boris Johnson in Carbonite. Well, it's, actually, <laughs> it's, it's basically this guy called Han Solo. But no, it really works well. Like, the title is part of the Carbonite, and so is the mm. 25 button. It's uh, honestly, it's, it's, it's a cracker. And if you want your mind grapes blown, uh, download the iPad edition because that is even funkier, that cover. It's got some amazing whooshing. I won't give it away. Whooshing. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh, just one quick mention of, on the list, just to give you, just to whet your appetite. 87th greatest film of all time, The 400 Blows. Spoiler. Just leaving it out there. Uh, if you want to see what the other ones are, is Evil Dead 2 in the list? It is. Evil Dead 2 is on the list. I had nothing to do with that. I genuinely had nothing to do with that. All right, so time now for next interview. As inevitably as Shyamalan follows night, the second interview of the pod follows movie news. And Doug Lyman is one of the most reliably unreliable directors in Hollywood, flitting from disparate project to disparate project in a manner that reflects his somewhat eccentric persona. He's a man who made Swinger Swing, made Go Go, made Mr. and Mrs. Smith memorable for more than just his lead pairing, and launched Jason Bourne onto the big screen. He's back as director this week with a Tom Cruise Groundhog Day meets Independence Day vehicle, Edge of Tomorrow, in which the cruiser plays a reluctant recruit in mankind's final fight against alien invaders who finds himself living the same day over and over and over again. Helen and I went along to speak to Lyman earlier this week. And I have things to say about this. What do I have to say about it? I've forgotten. Yes, we should make clear, uh, just because a couple of things we talk about without really introducing. Yes. Um, this is based on a Japanese novel uh, mm-hmm. called All You Need Is Kill. Great title. Um, so that might be... Yeah, it is. I really... I still like that. But... Yeah. Um, Uh, That is something worth knowing before we go in. Also, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, and indeed most of the cast, uh, fight wearing exosuits. So these kind of like super-powered suits, a little bit like the power loader in Aliens. Um, Again, we talk about that without really introducing them, so that might be useful for you to know. Oh, and uh, we start off, uh, the film uh, takes place in Europe, London and France primarily, and it starts off in London, for which uh, Doug Lyman has somehow managed to get permission to shut down Trafalgar Square for a day. And we were on set, actually, in that time. That's yeah. really interesting. And so that's what we start off talking about. Enjoy. He's a blast. Uh, Doug, as, as a Londoner, I was amazed at how you managed to clear Trafalgar Square of so all tourists. Yeah. And uh, is there any chance you could do that for Oxford Street or any other <laughs> any other places in London that where I'm, where I'm going? I'll just call you ahead of time. You just clear the place for me. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, in general, like I think we probably created more traffic than, than less. <laughs> you know, so unless uh, unless you actually needed to just land a helicopter in Trafalgar Square, yeah, if you needed to accomplish anything else that day, uh-huh. um, we weren't your friend. Okay, okay. Uh, I yeah, I've never had the call to land a helicopter in Trafalgar Square before. But how did how neither did he... had our uh, our team? Yeah, that's you know when you cast a movie star like Tom Cruise. I mean he he thinks really big. I mean I like to think I think pretty big. I mean, this guy really thinks big. And so he was. He said right from the beginning, like, wouldn't it be cool if I arrived in a helicopter landing in Trafalgar Square? And we're like, yeah, that'd be cool, but that's never, ever going to happen. And he's like, you can make that happen. It's like, no, they've never landed a helicopter in Trafalgar Square ever in the history of London. Yeah. Never in war, never. Yeah. So I was like, no, but you can do it. <laughs> and, you know, that, that smile that, you know, that wins over audiences also works like in a conference room and it works behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and it's you know somebody told us before you know before you go work with a movie star like tom cruise you know you talk to other people about like well what's it like what's it going to be like and i'm sure people ask the same thing about before they work with me like Mm -hmm. what's it going to be like or Mm -hmm. are the horror stories true or whatever so we're like what's (laughs) what's it gonna be like working with tom cruise and and uh we were told he he will make you better than you ever thought you could be right 
And so the Trafalgar Square sequence was just one example of not just me, but in particular the the locations department saying this is impossible. We this this could never happen. And he convince and he makes them better than they have ever been because they had to convince uh, something like uh, eight seven thousand businesses to close yeah. Yeah. and you know reroute eighty bus lines and 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 so many levels in this movie he made me better than I ever thought I could be. Mm. So was his casting the real reason for sort of uh, changing the kind of the, the starting premise of the film? I mean, in the book he's a raw recruit; he's just going through kind of training with everybody else. In this, you, you give him, you know, you don't give him that out. He's not an innocent guy. You know, yeah. who who has no choice but to be there. He's a, he's a guy who kind of gets himself into this yeah. situation. Well, the, you know, the difference between a book and a movie is, you know, the book can be like a first person experience, right? So that you can sort of have a very bland character at the heart because you'll infuse it with yourself. I mean, we had that experience when I was adapting Born Identity, where it's like Jason Bourne, the really the he really was a very bland character that you, which was amazing when you read the book because you're Jason Bourne. But if you're making a movie, like, you you actually, you know... I mean, there are plenty of movies out there where the, the hero is sort of a bland character and, you know, they count on the audience maybe to sort of try to pretend they're them. But, like, you know you're not Tom Cruise. I mean, you know you're watching a movie. It's different than reading a book. So um, the moment you you adapt something like this to, to the screen, I, I believe you have to create a character and create a character that an audience can watch and a character that's going to have a strong arc... Uh, and so once you do that, you're, you're, you're reinventing the story. Mm. Um, and so that was the reason to, uh, to change the, uh, the setup. And also, you know, it was, the book is, you know, it's an amazing story and it's, you know, obviously I fell in love with it, but there was a more fun and funny story to tell, which is, um, to take a character like the character Tom Cruise plays, who, who's a, who's a marketing guy who's selling the war for other people to go fight and, mm. And in particular, selling these suits of armor that, you know, like it's like you'll be in a video game. Just strap it on and you'll go kill aliens. And to take that guy and send him to the front lines and strap him in the suit of armor that he was selling other people on. And then, you know, have him have trouble controlling it. He accidentally switches it into Japanese. <laughs> you know, the thing feels incredibly claustrophobic. It's his worst nightmare. I mean, that's a... To me, that's a more fun character. That's a more fun movie than just taking the premise of the book, which is just a guy on his first day in battle. Yeah. Mm. And you've got the sort of uh, the echoes of, of D-Day running through the uh, the film as well, because obviously, I mean, it's the what, 70th anniversary this year, so that's kind of nice for, for historians to yeah. kind of cling on to as well. But I mean, why... And we come out on the anniversary in America on the anniversary Fantastic. of D-Day. Oh, wow. That's just a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, but it's, it, it kind of gives it a little bit extra resonance, maybe. Was that why you were thinking cross-channel invasion as opposed to, you know, because anywhere else in the world, it could be anywhere in the world, right? I mean, yeah, no, we could have set the story anywhere. And I, I've lived in France. I've lived in England. Uh, and and I'm, I'm kind of a contrary filmmaker. I mean, I, you know, my films are not traditional studio films. That's why I sort of said the same way that I asked, what's it like to work with Tom Cruise that like, I'm sure people are always asking, what's it like to work with Doug? I'm constantly like uh, fighting the system. And so one of the things that's in the system is if you make an alien invasion film, like the aliens have to be attacking an American city. Yeah. Because an American <laughs> audience isn't going to care about a European city. Yeah, it's always like, New York or San Francisco, right? All, yeah. Pretty much always. <laughs> and it's like, could you get an American audience to care about 
London getting overrun. Mm. And I was excited to, to basically just for no other reason than to just change it up, move the story to Europe and be like, I think we can make an audience care about England. But obviously the film also hinges on this, uh, this wonderful premise that uh, Tom's character has to relive the same day yeah. over and over again until he gets it right. Did you have in your office, in the production offices, a giant wall chart? of all the possibilities, of all the things, just to make, because continuity in this thing must have been insane. So at this point, he's doing this. At this point, he has these abilities, et cetera, et cetera. Was that tough for you? You know, you're describing, you know, a process that, you know, maybe a different filmmaker, you know, a more organized filmmaker <laughs> probably would have done and would have certainly made everyone's lives easier. But it was sort of more in my head and... In a way, my experience making the film isn't all that different than Tom Cruise's experience as a character right. in the movie, which is, you know, the live, die, repeat. Like, I would shoot, and then I would repeat. <laughs> I would go back and, and do it again. And um, I'm sort of known for my my retakes yeah. and, and going back and going back until I get it right. And even at my cousin's wedding three years ago, they asked me to videotape it. You know, it was a really small wedding, and then I, I missed... I didn't know how the camera worked. They just handed it to me, <laughs> and I didn't figure out how it worked until we were a little ways into the wedding, and we were done, and I was like, could you guys... Could you just walk down the aisle for me again? <laughs> just because I didn't get it the first time, and my cousin, who's also a filmmaker, was like, oh, my God, like, the stories are true about you, and I'm like, well, they are, but, like, just... <laughs> No one will know. Just walk down the aisle. Let me get it again, and I can cut it in, and it'll be fine. And that really was my experience making Edge of Tomorrow. Was wow. And Tom loved it. Yeah. There, there's no one who loved it. You know, as much as I loved it, if I told Tom, like, hey, I want to go back to the scene we shot last week, Tom was – it was never like, oh, why'd you get it wrong? It was like, you think we can get it better? <laughs> or you have a new idea? Like, let's go for it. Yeah. Okay, that's an amazing story. So are you available to do other people's weddings? or? <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I, I, I'm not sure if you saw the results. You, know, you might think I should stick to films like Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> amazing. Uh, did, did you get to try on the exosuits yourself or did you leave that to the actors? Um, I mean, once I saw the actors training in the exosuit, and I, especially right at the beginning, and I saw their faces straining and sweating... Um, especially when like J squad came in to start training and I was like, cause Tom would, you know, I never saw Tom sweat ever, <laughs> but you know, I saw some of the, the other actors really straining and sweating and having to get massages at the end of the day. This is just during in rehearsal when they're only wearing the suits for a little part of the day. And I thought, Oh, you know, I should probably not wear that suit mm -hmm. because I don't really, I don't want to be thinking about them being in pain. Like, that's not my job. My job is to tell the best possible story. And it's for somebody else to worry about when they have to come out of the suit or not. So I, I, so I never wore the suit, and I, I don't know how painful it is. I mean, I can guess that it's pretty <laughs> painful. And also, you know, just, you know, if you have a chance to meet Emily Blunt, she's like the most charming, mm. sweet, funny, charismatic person you've ever met. But put her in the suit for like an hour, <laughs> and you know it's you know it's Doctor Jekyll and Hyde, you know. Amazing, but that that must get her into the sort of badass Rita mode, I guess. If she's in the suit for an hour, yeah, probably too badass, you know. Like that's like you know it, we're, we're, there's a there's a romantic comedy at the heart of this movie, and like you know that's 
maybe we better take her out of the suit for a little bit. I, I want to uh, ask you from a continuity point of view how you approach this movie because it takes place on the same day. And you sh- your shoot went on for, what, six, seven months, I'm guessing, something like that, a movie this, this big? Yeah. How, how did you deal with you know, inclement weather, rain? Because obviously the weather has to be fairly consistent. How did you manage to do that? Yeah, no, the weather, especially because we're shooting in England, was, yeah. was the biggest continuity nightmare. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, I, I loved working in England. I can't wait to come back here and make another movie. But dealing with the weather was ridiculously complicated. But we ended up basically building all of our locations at, at the soundstage at, at Leavesden. Mm-hmm. Even the beach sequences is, is we built this massive beach set that had dunes, beach, and ocean. Mm-hmm. Wow. We built, you know, three gates of, of Heathrow Airport. <laughs> I mean, these, these sets were ridiculously large. Like, you needed a car to get from one end of the set to the other. But it meant that when... Uh, and we designed the shoot so that certain parts of the day were sunny and per- certain parts of the day were rainy and certain parts of the day were cloudy. Okay. And so if it, if the sun came out, we would just move to a different set and shoot a different uh, shoot a scene, a part of a scene that could be set during the sun. And, and we were constantly uh, chasing the weather that way. But we always we never waited. I always whatever whatever Mother Nature was delivering here, mm-hmm. you know, in some days it'd be snow. Then yes. the sun would come out, then the clouds would come in, then <laughs> then it would rain, then the sun would come out and you yeah. you know, but we never waited. We always had something we could shoot. I think you've just described today. Um you said you mentioned when you were in London before that you did a couple of uh, green screen reshoots just for to tweak little tiny things with uh with Tom yeah. sort of after the main filming. Can you tell us what scenes those were that you really wanted to just fine tune? Yeah, I mean, we Tom and I basically went back to almost every scene in the film and and fine tuned it, whether we did it with ADR or if we went back and shot little pieces on green screen. So uh, basically, the the entire opening scene with Brendan Gleeson mm-hmm. was entirely reshot. Uh, I just I ended up I want I changed one line and then we ended up just changing the whole scene and reshot Tom on green screen and basically composited him over his old self. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and Tom really loved that. Tom, Tom, you know, I, I've never met somebody who has like a pursuit of excellence, you know, who lives and, and breathes that stronger than Tom Cruise. So if there's a thought, hey, I think we can make the scene better, he's there. He's there a hundred percent. Just one last thing. Looking at the IMDb, you're connected or attached to about nine different projects on there. How do you choose? what you do next because I'm just looking at, at Empire's website over the last few years and you're linked to so many projects from Three Musketeers to Everest to Splinter Cell yeah. so but how do you actually decide which one you want to do next uh, I mean my criteria is really simple it's like if I direct that movie will it be fundamentally different than if anybody else did it like do I have a take on the material and a, an approach to it that uh is unlike anybody else's and that's you know that started way back when i was doing swingers and i mm-hmm. showed the script you know that was a script that got passed on by everybody and even my friends were like i don't understand why you want to make this movie the characters are totally unlikable they're misogynistic you know the vince vaughn characters totally unlikable and i'm like no they're i love these characters <laughs> and i realized like i need to make this movie actually i didn't realize it then i just went and made the movie but mm-hmm. then I went and made Go, and I showed the same. I showed the script to Go to the same group of friends, and they're all like, "I don't understand why you want to make this movie. These <laughs> characters are completely unlikable. There's nobody doing anything good in this movie." And I'm like, "I love every one of these characters." And right then and there, I realized, no, 
I need to make this movie because I need to show people why you should love these characters. Like, yeah. because I love them and I'm not judgmental about them, uh, the audience will, will learn to love them. And I mean, the reason the audience loves Vince Vaughn's character in Swingers is because I love him. And so I realized if I have a unique take that, you know, and I can bring an audience along on, on that journey, that's a reason to make the movie. So on Edge of Tomorrow, I had a, a, an approach to... I was like, I can make this as an indie movie. Mm. Like, there's probably no other filmmaker out there, you know. There's filmmakers out there who make great character movies, and there's filmmakers out there who can do big, epic movies. But, you know, there's probably nobody else out there who's willing to sort of stare down Warner Brothers and say, like, I'm going to workshop a love story with two actors and go thousands of miles away to England, and we're just going to figure it out and stay away and do a character-driven summer movie. Do you always go to your group of friends back home and show them a script? And if they don't like it, then, then you do then it? Then that's a reason yeah. to do it. Is that pretty much No, it? the problem now is I, you know, like, I try not to surround myself with yes people. Mm-hmm. And my friends are very critical of me, but they they wouldn't have the same objectivity now to, to tell me the script is awful that they had back then. Oh, okay. So I'm on my own to do that. <laughs> All right, well, Doug, uh, I wish you all the best, sir. Thanks Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so that's Doug Lyman there. Uh, he is available f- to film your wedding, your children's parties, and your bar mitzvahs. Over uh, and over again. Over and over again until he gets it right. Uh, can you do my wedding, Doug? Because my wedding video was deleted. Anyway, I'm over it now. Let's start with the review section by talking about Edge of Tomorrow, largely on the grounds that it may well be the only good film out this week. Uh, so, <laughs> let's talk about it. Helen. Right, yes. So this is, uh, as we've already said, this is uh, a kind of a Groundhog Day-esque concept. Tom Cruise plays a military PR man who, through a series of really appalling decisions on his part, gets sent to the front lines as a grunt, um, promptly gets killed, but not before he gets some alien blood into his system. And that alien blood means that he becomes uh, part of this sort of alien collective. And it turns out that the reason that they are kicking human ass after arriving on Earth is that they can relive the same day over and over again until they get it right. So, you know, they can they can turn back time and redo uh, so that they're ready to meet an invasion and so on. Um, he becomes part of this same loop, which means that he starts every day he dies and goes back to the start um, and, and once again faces going into battle. So he starts off as a coward, as a really contemptible, snivelling little man. He kind of in some ways stays that way but uh, what he does manage to do as he keeps going through the same day over and over again dying over and over again is he becomes a little bit more competent with his exosuit and also um, forges an alliance with Emily Blunt's Rita Ratatsky who is the really most kick-ass soldier in the army and it turns out that the reason that she is so fierce is that she's been through the same thing she had the same power uh, she lost it and so she's the only one who believes what he's telling them and the only one who he can work with to try and win this war essentially so great great premise um, actually and I mean Tom Cruise is always good Emily Blunt is pretty much always good as well the two of them are great together in this she is so much more fearsome than he is that it it provides a really nice sort of refreshing contrast and it's it's really well done i mean doug lyman has delivered a a really you know impressive memorable Mm. different action movie um and one that kind of you know sees a, a really credible evolution of this character from you know utter wimp to somebody really quite formidable. Yeah, uh, I still think X-Men Days of Future Past is the best blockbuster of the summer thus far, uh, but this is damn close. And I think it's a real shame. if you, I, I've got a sneaking suspicion this isn't going to do that well in the States. 
uh, and by extension the rest of the world. Who knows? But uh, I hope that people go out and see this because it is actually clever and inventive and well put together and well acted and has great action sequences and very funny at times as well. And is yeah, uh, because it is quite dark and it does get into some quite dark areas, but. Uh, yeah, it is very, very funny at times, and it really does play with that sort of Groundhog Day. Uh, if you, if you, if you hate Tom, Doug Lemon has said this already publicly, but if you hate Tom Cruise, this is the movie for you because he will, you, he dies all the time yeah. in this film in a series of increasingly inventive ways. Emily Blunt shoots him in the face about six times. Yeah, you know, it, absolutely. I love their pairing. Hmm. I really love her pairing. She becomes more sympathetic and softer as the movie goes on. He becomes a little more hard-edged. Uh, and Cruz is fantastic in this film. I have to say, he gets a he does get a lot of stick for uh, for uh, extracurricular pursuit. No, extracurricular—that's the wrong word. He gets a lot of stick for his off-camera activities. But yeah, just he's one of the great leading men, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 this film and something like Oblivion as well it suggests to me that he's still ready to take risks as a leading man. Um, and, uh, it just it's just it's just worked for me. It's really entertaining, really solid piece of filmmaking. Speaking of World War Z, you know what I was saying about how, you know, once it's gone on DVD and people start watching on Netflix or whatever, the love of Oblivion has become pretty substantial too. A lot yeah. of people like I actually really love that film. I wish people hadn't kind mm. of put out this cloud of oh well it's a Tom Cruise movie or oh, I'm not sure this is gonna work. The film I've been most excited about this year, I would actually say is this one. Because I always thought of it as my kind of you know what, I reckon that's going to be good. And I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it tonight. But everything I've heard about it so far has been people saying, we loved it. Like, it's we're big fans. I hope we're not building up too much. It's, <laughs> no, it, look, it's I, really good. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And, you know, I like the idea of it being set in Britain too. That's mm. It's got, I, you know, him in Trafalgar Square. That's great. Mm. I do wish they had kept the original title. I think when the Blu-ray comes out, I'm going to put a sticker on it. <laughs> <laughs> Very long it's sticker, I should wise. say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, All You Need is Kill is a fantastic title. And there was a fear whenever that got changed. I thought, oh, this movie's going to be, uh, you know, as with Ant Man, homogenized and all the rough edges are going to be sanded off. Absolutely not. You know, yeah. it, it even finishes on a. We aren't going to talk about it, obviously. No. But it even finishes on a really interesting note. Yes. Uh, which, I, which I quite like. I won't say too much about that because obviously we don't want to get into spoiler territory. But I will say it has changed from the book. So if you have read the book, which is very short and very fun, um, you should. Um, but if you haven't read the book, it will be different um, to to what you have read there. So um, be prepared. We will have more on the spoileriness of the ending towards the end of the year once everyone's seen it. We'll give everyone a chance to watch it first. True. So it's four stars for Edge of Tomorrow. I absolutely agree with that. That's, uh, it's a fantastic film and well worth your time. Hell no, we'll go and see it over and over and over again. <laughs> see what happens uh, right let's move on now to Maleficent uh, in which Angelina Jolie plays Disney's iconic fairy live action retelling of Sleeping Beauty this is it or is it something slightly different it's something slightly different it's the sort of the wicked version of uh, Sleeping Beauty in that we now see why exactly uh, Maleficent uh, played here by Angelina Jolie of course um, curses an innocent baby to death uh, here she curses her it's almost word for word that scene but she says a sleep like death and not you know, full on dying um, because they're trying to make her a slight, slightly more of a goodie. But this is a story It starts off with Maleficent as a child, um, has a sort of young relationship with a, a young boy called Stefan who grows up to be Charlotte Copley. Um, 
that doesn't go particularly well, which sort of turns her against humanity. There's already tension between the fairy world and the human world, and uh, and that's why she sort of ends up in the place that she does. But she then, as Aurora grows up and she keeps a close eye on her, she sort of comes to regret that decision and tries to undo it and finds it rather difficult to do. Here's the thing about this. I mean, I am a huge fan of the original uh, Disney Sleeping Beauty. I think it's their most visually interesting film um, maybe of the classic Disney period. I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, Avon Durrell, the guy who designed it, just did incredible work. I also think Maleficent is by far the best Disney baddie and, and honestly one of the greatest films of all time. So seeing her played kind of as wet as she sometimes is here, I think is is not good. And I don't put any of that on Jolie's shoulders because I think she really focuses on delivering the movie Maleficent. The problem is really everything around her is just horrendously sugary and cutesy. The scenes with young Maleficent and young Stefan are almost unbearable and all the other fairies are awful. Three fairies who raise Aurora, their names have been slightly changed from the original. They're played by Leslie Manville, um, Imelda Staunton and Juno Temple, which... They were going for something, but they're 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 crippled by the it's effects in the, the script. Uh, the Mike Lee All Stars. It kind of is, isn't it? You wish it was a Mike Lee film sometimes. Um, so, I mean, the director of this, Robert Stromberg, he's a first time director. He was the production designer and, and had a lot of effects work um, background. He's worked on things like Oz the Great and Powerful and Alice in Wonderland. Good God! Yeah, and the problem is, <laughs> this looks like those. It doesn't look like the classic Disney so much. It looks like those movies and. Actually, there's too much visual detail in a way. You want something slightly more stark and slightly more austere. And I think that would really support what Angelina Jolie does with Maleficent better than all of this visual nonsense going on around her. I must say, I haven't seen Maleficent yet, but the the new wave of Disney live action movies based on classic movies, I hate it. I've still got hopes for maybe Cinderella. I think that could maybe fit better. Yeah, It feels like a factory. It feels like they're just going, what have we got? But this churn is, out one a year. I don't know. Well, this is, I mean, this was, you know, had good people involved. Linda Wolverton, who wrote the script, um, you know, did things like The Lion King. I mean, she's she's got a really, or sorry, Beauty and the Beast. She's got a really strong background. But I feel like even when I was on set and she was describing the script, it was too complicated. There was too much going on. And in fact, they've streamlined a lot of the first half, removed some of Maleficent's backstory. And I think it doesn't help. They've actually removed the less cutesy elements of her backstory, which makes it even cutesier. Um I would love to see Angelina Jolie play more Maleficent, mm. but just not with anything else around her. Sam Riley, she can keep. I, I enjoyed him. He was fun. Everything else, just no. How is uh, Shelter Copley's accent? I didn't think the accent was as ropey as other people have said. So he's doing Scottish, right? He's doing Scottish. It's not quite as... Um, I mean, it, it slips a couple of times, but, you know, no more than, say, Michael Fassbender as Magneto. The problem is more that his character is, is just awful. He's not a a compelling enough villain to be the villain, but he's also far too evil to be a sort of a a comic character or one that that could credibly be a sort of a love interest for her. He's he's horrendous. There's there's something very, very close to a rape scene in this movie. And um, not in a sexual way, but in in, in terms of the violation. Uh, It's really uncomfortable to watch. And so it it just tonally, this is all over the place. So anyway... Mm. We give it two stars. Both of those, from my money, are for Angelina Jolie. I have a, f- a final quick question, uh, which is minion-related. Mm. Um, in Sleeping Beauty, I love Mifflin's minions. She has these weird creatures that are kind of half crocodile, half pig. Are they in the movie? There are still some guys who look like that. They're quite 
they're cute. They're just the right side of cute because they're kind of ugly cute, but they they don't really have anything to do with anything. Um, Sam Riley is her uh, sort of sidekick, Diaval, who starts off as a raven, but she can turn them into anything. So she turns them into a man most of the time. So he's her kind of person she can sound off at. He she she occasionally turns him into a horse or a wolf or something else. So um, he's her kind of main sidekick. Not a crocodile. Not a crocodile. Sorry about that. Damn it. Mm, okay. Two stars for Maleficent. I think one of the problems may be, and this is you know going sight unseen, is an issue of commitment, the, the issue of, again, swerving away from rough edges. And Couldn't they have just not made a movie where she was just the Maleficent that we know? Mm. I think that, I mean, honestly, I think there's something to be said for showing the humanity behind the villain, maybe, mm. but not the cutesiness. Yeah. I'm just getting a little tired of showing the humanity behind the villains. <laughs> We're going to get a Cruella de Vil movie explaining. Yeah. Why young, she likes spots. Or young Hans Gruber where he actually has a puppy or something. Else. <laughs> I'm up for that. Why can't people just be evil? That's all I ask. That's all I ask. Moving on to the third big release of the week, uh, which is Seth MacFarlane's comedy western, A Million Ways to Die in the West. Uh, it's his follow-up to Ted, his second film as director, and uh, this time he's put himself on screen as the lead, as a sort of cowardly guy in the wild, wild west uh, who strikes up a relationship with Charlize Theron's cowgirl. Okay. It's fair to say that there's a bit of a Seth MacFarlane backlash going on at the moment. I've never liked him. So <laughs> I don't know where uh, I think it's, don't know where I stand. I think it's that. telling that Ted, when it was first released, uh, they encouraged a lot of press and other people to go and see it and to kind of give feedback. Uh, but with this one, there was pretty much an embargo out until day release, which is today. Mm-hmm. You can see why. Having seen it, you can see why. This character he plays Albert Stark. He runs a sheep farm uh, out in the frontier in the in eighteen eighty two, and that's good for him. He's in love with a character played by Amanda Seyfried. She, of course decides to dump him and he is really cut up about that to get over it fate allows Charlize Theron to walk into town who turns out that it turns out she's married to the character of Clinch Letterwood who's played by Liam Neeson he's the badass kill first don't worry about it later character who's obviously a uh, Clint Eastwood pastiche more or less he says to his wife you go off to this Hickville town old stump go play with them for about 12 days I'll come back after I've stolen a bunch of gold and uh, we'll go on more adventures. Charlize Theron and Albert Stark, uh, Seth MacFarlane fall for each other as she teaches him how to learn to shoot so that he can challenge the love rival he has in town played by uh, the actually very funny Neil Patrick Harris uh, who has despite this being the Wild West of course and if you apply logic to this uh, everything obviously falls apart and why would you because this is a film that has a rather large quantity of sheep penis uh, on on show Uh, I saw I counted maybe four or five sheep penises and they were both urinating and not urinating did you fall asleep I did not fall asleep but there were sections where I did feel quite bored the film has jokes in it that do work it has plenty of jokes that don't work it lacks the pacing and and speed and kind of fierceness of Family Guy where even if not every joke works. There's so much coming at you that you kind of get swept up in the energy. This one gets a bit swamped and bogged down in the love story between Charlie Theron and Seth MacFarlane, and you kind of lose interest. There are these two plots of both trying to get the girl, Amanda Seyfried, and also fight Liam Neeson. And you don't need two. I think you just need a romp in the West. I think I think the reason for that is that they didn't feel... If Amanda Seyfried left him for Liam Neeson, say... Sure. Um, then I think in, in the in the world of the film, he would be like, oh, fair enough, he's a big manly man. 
what get, what gets his go is that she leaves him for Neil Patrick Harris with his preening ways and his habit of laughing at his own jokes, which is the funniest thing in the film. You know, if so, if the only gunfight was against Liam Neeson, that would be too big a leap for him to make, and he just wouldn't make it. He'd just give up and go home. Uh, so I think, I mean, I think from a story point of view, I think that's why they've made that decision because it does feel a little bit repetitive that he has to keep kind of going through this. Um, f- but it, that's not the problem, I think. You're right, the problem is that just too many of the jokes don't hit and it's taking too long f- yeah. for you to get from one to the other. I was really expecting a 90-minute in-out. Few people eat beans, they fart a lot, uh, a sheep explodes. Uh, and a total there is no- farting. A total non-sequitur, cutaway, bunch of cameos, references that don't make sense. Contemporarily, all of that stuff that you expect with a Seth MacFarlane slash Family Guy type film it doesn't connect. It doesn't really work. It's quite slow at times. I saw people in front of me take their phones out and check the weather. Yeah. I did feel like Seth MacFarlane was living his dream. He well, was yeah. in a comedy cowboy Well, movie. that's it. I, I, I think Ted was such a huge smash for him. You know, obviously his TV shows are massively successful and it feels like he had complete creative control of this. Yeah. And, and you know, loads of studios turned down Ted. Yeah. And Universal picked it up and it was a humongous smash and they obviously rewarded him with... But it's just not funny enough, and it opens with this sort of six-minute opening sequence of these, pan- you know, these panoramic shots of Monument Valley, and it's not funny. There's, it goes on for ages, and it's like this probably cost a lot of money, and Seth MacFarlane's name keeps flashing up on the screen in massive letters at least four times, and you just kind of go already before the film starts. You're like, this is a massive ego project, and he's not a likable protagonist. He doesn't work. He's too much of a ween, uh, and it, and you just wonder why everything keeps going right for him. You kind of go, you know what? If, if things got a bit worse, there wouldn't be. There's a scene bad. where he's kissing Charlize Theron, and they kiss, and then they kiss again, and then he walks off, and she looks after him and sighs. And it was that point where I just thought, I'm sick of this film. I don't want to follow <laughs> this guy. I don't like this character, and it's two hours long. The um, I will say that for the Monument Valley shots, like there are some beautiful shots of Monument Valley you know <laughs> so like if you work on the tourist board you're going to be really happy with this film it looks incredible and it's a shame because the westerns uh, have not done well recently the last attempt to do a, a big budget western Cowboys and Aliens I believe uh, Lone Ranger sorry Lone Ranger well that, that makes the case even more so I guess but yeah they've, they've all kind of flopped I don't think this is going to do that well it's a shame because I like westerns and I want to see more of them there are laughs in it I agree with you Helen I think Neil Patrick Harris is mm. the funniest thing in it the little noises he makes after he says something are just they crack me up uh, repeatedly there's a funny song about moustaches yeah I like that moustache song there's funny stuff in it it's just there are whole scenes that don't have any laughs in them mm. and also just could go and the plot wouldn't really be affected mm. I'm going to lighten the mood with a, a quick quiz Liam Neeson has done one other western in his career what is that western? with the one with uh, Bronholm uh-huh. yes it's called Seraphim Falls yes there you go, you got double team action go. on that one. There we go. Double team. Are we all happier? Uh, one good thing about the film I liked was the fact that Liam Neeson was doing a North Irish accent again. I like that too. He's doing it a lot more often, uh, deliberately, because I find that a lot of Liam Neeson's American accents do fear into the north of Ireland <laughs> from time to time. Um, but yeah, it's good. He did it in Lego Movie as well, and yeah, it's good. Embrace the North Irishness, Liam. I like seeing Bruce like. Byrne doing Australian accent in, in Bad Neighbours. Was that? I liked seeing Rose Byrne doing a, yeah. a native accent. Yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Embrace it. Embrace it. All right. So uh, we gave A Million Ways to Die in the West two stars. Also out this week is uh, the film that was originally mooted as Ken Loach's final film, Jimmy's Hall. It is not going to be the case, we're delighted to say. Ellen, what can you tell us about Jimmy's Hall? Well, this is uh, this stars Barry Ward, who's um, kind of an... He's not 
very well known in films actually his sort of Irish stage uh, career um, he's very good in this uh, it's set in County Leitrim in 1932 so he is uh, a, a communist activist who's been working in New York he comes back home and he's convinced to rebuild the community centre uh, in town as a centre for art but also for, for debate and dancing and this is extremely controversial with the sort of the ruling uh, powers that be and with the Catholic Church um, who were of course extremely and are extremely important in Ireland at the time so they see it as a sort of a, a, an attempt to rile up dissent and, and also you know fornication all that this kind of thing that dancing can lead to so he f- finds himself on a, on a collision course as a result of this and so you've got just a, a, a kind of a, a, a political story writ small I guess uh, in a way but but one that's that's very very compelling um, with with Barry Ward basically going up against you know everyone essentially Jim Norton is is the main kind of leader of that he's the kind of fire and brimstone guy Andrew Scott actually plays his deputy who's a little bit more progressive and a little bit more willing to listen to reason mm. but it's it's uh, it's very authentic. It's very you know good at, at sort of giving you a, a vision of Ireland in those days. It's maybe not quite as biting or as as kind of uh, complex or as detailed as, as some of Ken Loach's absolute best work, um, but but still you know always worth seeing basically. Um, and this got three stars. Three stars for Jimmy Tall. Uh, Jim Norton, incidentally, is Bishop Len Brennan. Father Ted, does he get kicked up the arse in this? I can exclusively reveal that he does not get kicked up the arse. But quite frankly, there are times when he would have benefited from it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Uh, easy now, easy now. Uh, All right, so we gave three stars for Jimmy's Hall. We also gave three stars this week to Roman Polanski's latest film, Venus and Fur, which stars Emmanuel Senye and Matthew Almerick is very much a two hander. So three stars for that one, and that will be at your local art house emporium. Uh, And that is it for this week's uh, Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Bob Whitey, creator of the Nick Frost sitcom Mr. Sloan, which is currently airing on Sky Atlantic, and Taylor Schilling and Jason Biggs, stars of Orange is a New Black. So it's very much a TV-centric interviewee podcast next week. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Fairly well. It's goodbye from Ali. Uh, goodbye. I would just like to, and I know Chris uh, disapproved last time, but there is an American radio show done by NPR called This American Life. Uh, It's a little bit waffly at times, but they have a great interview with Molly Ringwald at the end of their latest uh, episode where she watches The Breakfast Club with her young daughter. Right. And watching the film with her and seeing how they both react. And she's obviously not seen the film for years and years and years. It's just a fascinating insight. And uh, you should go check it out. I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's the latest one if you you check it out now. I can't be mad with you for plugging other things because I'm the guy who plugged his uh, alternate Twitter handle (laughs) earlier on in the podcast. I just feel like at the end of the podcast, you may want to know where you're going to next, uh, what you want to do next. Uh, Anyway, NPR, they call it This American Life, and it is the final third of the latest show. Molly Ringwald talking about... Some movie called The Breakfast Club. Fantastic. Uh, it is also goodbye from Nick. Nick, do you have another excerpt from the Godzilla novelization for us? To I, uh, see us off? Give me a second. Um, Just pick any sentence at random, it'll be a gold. Oh, hang on. The observation platform overlooking Saratoga's flight deck, located in the carrier's upper island, was nicknamed Vulture's Row. There you go. That's something you did not know. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to uh, watch the second half of A Million Ways to Die in the West over and over again until Seth MacFarlane gets it right. 